Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Luke Redpath, who is an independent Ruby on Rails and iOS app developer. Luke joins us today from the UK. Luke Redpath, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your time in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software? Well, being a freelancer for the last 11 years or so, I've, I've worked on a lot of code bases. So I've seen quite a wide range of quality in those code bases. And over that time, I guess, code that is optimized for readability first for me, I think. I've seen a lot of code that has been a bit too clever for its own good. Uh, uh, it, feel, it feels interesting and clever when you write it and then you come back to it several months later and you think, what the hell was I thinking when I wrote that code? And I include myself in that. I've written my, my own fair share of code that uh, I've looked back on and thought, what was I doing? Maintainable software by definition is so- software you, come, you can come back to and it's easy to change and it's easy to enhance, add new features remove old features without breaking everything. So code that's easy to read is uh, is really important. You want to be able to bring new developers in and have them jump into a code base and find their way around and understand it as quickly as possible. Uh, it goes without saying that tests are important. I think like a lot of Rubyists, testing is really, really important. I, I, I'm quite dogmatic about testing. You've got to test, you've got to write unit tests, but not just unit tests. Uh, integration tests and kind of high-level acceptance tests, I think they get forgotten about sometimes because they're slow and they're a pain to write. And they're still important, especially on legacy code where you know don't necessarily have a lot of unit tests or it's quite hard to refactor without breaking a lot of unit tests. If you've got that kind of key high-level acceptance test suite in place, it gives you some confidence that you're not going to completely break everything as you try and turn old legacy crafty code into something that's nicer, well-tested code, I suppose. Yeah, certainly when using frameworks like Rails, code that sticks to kind of established conventions wherever possible. I know some people like to go off and do their own kind of thing in the Rails world. You, people might try and do kind of really heavy domain-driven design, for example, in Rails. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But anything that kind of strays away from Rails conventions automatically introduces a new barrier to entry, I guess, for any any Rails developer you might bring onto that project. If they've never done domain-driven design before, then that's another thing they're going to have to learn. But Rails has a lot of conventions for a reason. And if you can stick to them wherever possible, I think I think that help, that is helpful. Uh, that's quite a Rails-focused answer, I suppose. But yeah. It can apply to other platforms. I also do mobile development on iOS, which didn't have a lot of conventions, really. Apple kind of pushed the MVC pattern, which tends to break down eventually uh, in any kind of larger sized app. And kind of the iOS community over the last five years has gone through this period of discovery of architecture, app architecture. What's the best way of architecting our app? Lots of acronyms, MVVM, MVC, Viper, some of them are a little bit crazy. Some of them are kind of a better version of MVC. But I think it's a good thing that the community is getting towards some kind of established consensus about good architecture. And I think if you're talking about kind of monolithic Rails apps as well, still, you, even though they're monoliths, you still want them to be well-organized. Uh, being able to break parts of the code up into kind of well-defined modules makes it a lot easier to find your way around because monolithic Rails apps can get pretty pretty big i've worked on apps which has had hundreds of models none of those models are kind of cross-cutting concerns they could be broken up quite nicely into lots of different modules so that's another really important thing i think do you use the term or the metaphor technical debt at all in your yes all the time how do you define that at the moment technical debt to me is any decision made at a given point in time to sacrifice quality in some way to get where you're going faster, knowing that at some point in the future, you're going to have to come back and revisit that decision. 
I've worked on projects where we've talked about technical debt. It seems like all the time, every week, every sprint meeting, we're talking about technical debt. I think as a metaphor, it works, but people forget the other side of it, which is, you know, debt incurs interest over time. And the longer you leave it, the harder it becomes to repay that interest. I've, I've seen projects where technical debt has just become an excuse to do things badly. It's like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, it's technical debt. Log it in, Jira, and we'll come back to it. And then that never happens. We'll get to that someday. Does someday ever exist? Or Exactly. I think, I mean, there's ways of preventing that, but if they just get lost in a pile of tickets at the bottom of a Jira backlog and the team doesn't make time to tackle those, whether it's setting aside, you know, a certain amount of capacity in every given sprint to tackle it, or you know, tackling it as you work on a feature, then it just it just never happens. Um, I think it's okay to sacrifice quality sometimes. There's no point in spending months and months and lots and lots of money developing something that's technically very good if it never launches and you you run out of money. So technical debt exists for a good reason. I just think you need to be very considered about when you decide to sacrifice quality. Have you seen, you know, you mentioned like that example where things get thrown into a Jira backlog and I've seen, I've talked to different people, you know, on this podcast in particular with different ways and methodologies. You mentioned capacity in terms of like maybe percentage of time for your team is going to be spent dealing with those types of issues or what have you seen work well in that space? I'm quite a fan of the, I guess it's called the Boy Scout rule. I can't remember who coined that off the top of my head. It might have been Bob Martin. I'm not sure. I'd have to check. But just if for anyone that's not familiar with it, the principle that if you work on a piece of code because you're working on a feature and you encounter something about that code that is not maintainable, it's resistant to change, it's not well tested, it's a bit hacky, then taking the time to fix that while you're working on the feature whenever possible is something that you should do. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes what looks like a, oh, that's a five-minute fix, turns into a massive rabbit hole and you're still down it several days later. I think being able to recognize when you're going down a rabbit hole and stopping is a good thing. I, I, I can remember lots of times where I thought, right, I'll just, I'll just create a new branch. We'll see if we can fix this, merge it back in and carry on. In the end, I've, I've just decided this is, this is a nightmare. This isn't working. I've literally just deleted that branch of code, forgotten all about it, gone back to the team and said, look, we need to tackle this, but it's not a quick fix. This might need a fundamental change somewhere in the system that needs maybe a couple of people to look at it, some proper time scheduled in. But there's there's a lot of times where you can just make those changes and improve the code as you're going as you're working on the feature. You just need to make sure that project owners, for example, um, understand that when you're working on a feature that you're taking that time to improve the code and it's going to benefit the project in the long the long run. And that could be could have been a really simple feature. It could have been someone said, "Oh, that, that will only take an hour to implement implement that feature," and then you've discovered the problem as you start working on it, and it turns into a day, maybe. Yeah, that could be a definitely a big, a big challenge for teams, especially if they're feeling like under pressure to get something shipped, or or if they even gave it, if they gave a small estimate, they're like, "Oh shit!" Like now I'm in the scenario where like if I go down and start trying to unweave this rat's nest of code that I thought was like, it seems like a simple enough problem. And now I'm like, well, I said it was only take a couple hours. Now it's like, this might take a couple of days for me to really make sense of all this. And then being like, oh no, how do I go back and talk to the, whoever, you know, said that let's do this right now. And then like, like make sure you get buy-in from the team and like, or your stakeholders or the product owner, however you need to navigate that in your own, in your team setting. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge. And then, so I think it ends up being a reason why people's like, well, later i'll have to come back to this later deal with like let me get the the task at hand right now or there's a lot of people coming in the industry where they're new to an application as well and then they don't have that experience of knowing how to like well like i don't understand that area of code so might i break it you know if there's not say a reliable test suite or what have you so like that that can be another reason of people following the what what their predecessors had been doing within that project and so maybe getting some repeating bad habits in some sort. So how have you seen people misuse technical debt as a metaphor in those in those in conversations with stakeholders? I think coming back to what I said before about 
sometimes technical debt just being used as an excuse to not even attempt to do something properly in the first place, uh, literally an excuse to just hack something together is a way I've seen it sort of be abused, I guess. I think normal technical debt tends to come about more naturally, especially as a code base grows. You you encounter decisions you might have made about architecture or the design of the code earlier on that now make it difficult to implement new features. And because you don't have the time to really remodel that part of the code, you tend to kind of work around it. Uh, And that's technical debt to me. It's a decision you made earlier that might have been the right decision at the time. And now software changes and so do requirements. Uh, The previous decision doesn't fit the new requirements. And because it would take too long to fundamentally change everything just to get that new feature shipped, you make that kind of balanced decision to work around it. And that's technical debt. To me, that's good technical debt. I think picking up a ticket and saying, we could hack this together in a day, or we could spend three or four days and implement it properly. And the business just saying, could you just do the quick version, even though we've got the time, we've got the budget to do it properly. And you know, as a developer, that if you do the quick version, it's, it's going to cost you more time in the future. That's the sort of technical debt I think you want to avoid. There's no need to incur debt if you've got, trying to kind of really stretch this metaphor to its limit now, if you've got the credit, you may as well use it. There's no point in incurring unnecessary debt. Uh, but some people will just incur debt because the business kind of you've given the time pressures to ship something out of the door that don't need to be there there's no real pressing issue to get a feature out of the door out of the door in one day when you could spend a couple of days and do it properly so given that you've been an independent freelancer for you know a little under say 12 years or so you may said 11 or earlier but um, I love to focus a little bit on a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart is which is being a guest in another team's code base and I'm, I'm imagining that, that's been your life for quite a while, I'd imagine. What do you believe are some important things you need to keep in mind when you're diving into a new team's code base? So this is definitely something I feel like I've learned a lot over the last 10, 11 years. I've learned to be more patient when I become a, a kind of a new member on a team. It's very easy to pick up a new code base that you don't understand and think, oh, this is crap. I don't, who, who, who wrote this code? Uh, knowing full well it could have just been me that wrote that code at some point three or four years ago. I think it's really important to integrate with the team and understand the context in which decisions were made about the code base over time before just jumping in and criticizing it. It's great to pick up a code base and see lots of opportunities to improve it and refactor it. And quite often that's one of the reasons why you're being brought in by the client. They want you to do that, but it can feel very antagonistic towards the team. Who's this new person? We don't know him. He's coming in, he's criticizing all our code and it puts people's backs up. Taking the time to kind of understand the app properly, getting to know the domain, which is probably one of the the toughest challenges about being a freelancer, I suppose, is rather than spending years and years in one domain and really becoming an expert in it, You need to get up to speed with brand new domains all the time. You need to really understand new businesses. So taking that time to understand the domain, there's almost always been a good reason why a decision was made and why a code base ended up in in the way it is. Not always, but frequently there is. So understanding why that happened and hoping that it's documented in some way, whether it's through good commit messages in in the the source code history or you have access to the tickets and there's kind of good feedback on that ticket so you can see why it was implemented in that way but certainly taking your time being patient not coming in on day one day one and saying right let's change all this it's a load of rubbish no one wants to hear that <laughs> no and you know I'm, I'm always curious about how you know when you when you, when you join an existing team's project and whether or not the team is excited to have this new person be part of the team or not. You know, I think there's, you know, sometimes the, I don't know what's been your experience. I would imagine it's probably been a combination of uh, scenarios where the team's kind of advocated for bringing in someone that's maybe has more experience and more um, can help level up 
some aspects of the code or help improve the performance or help optimize some things or help with some refactoring or just be like, we're running way behind on this, this product launch and we need some help here. Or maybe you're being brought in by someone more senior in the team or like a, so someone's manager is bringing in someone else to like, hey, the, the team's stuck on some stuff. I need some help. I'm assuming, is it a safe assumption you've had kind of a combination of those types of scenarios? Yes, I think it's probably harder for the more senior developers on a team sometimes to have someone else that's fairly senior coming in. It kind of feels like you're treading on their patch a little bit. Uh, junior developers are always quite enthusiastic uh, and um, happy to hear someone else's point of view. I think it's really good to be able to work with junior developers when you come in to a team. Having them, you know, every, every developer needs to be present when you're kind of making design and technical decisions. And I think it's important to have juniors there to give input. Their input is still valid, um, even if they don't necessarily have the experience and they're not quite sure. Just having them there, I think, is a really good learning experience for them. Uh, and working with junior developers on decisions, sitting down and pairing with them and talking through why you're making decisions, why, why, why you're making this technical decision instead of that one. Um, and hopefully trying to lead them to make the same sort of decisions you would make over time, I think is a really good way of mentoring junior developers and including them in the team when you're trying to make these kind of fairly high level decisions about the code structure or how you're going to model something um, in, in the domain, for example. As someone that's when you're joining these projects and you mentioned like trying to wrap your head around their domain do you have some strategies you've you've started to pick up over the years on how to gain some momentum and show some early progress in those relationships? At a code level, I think it's really good to be able to just dive in and try and ship a PR in your first couple of days on a project. It doesn't have to be the most exciting feature, or it could be a bug fix. Uh, but something that touches various parts of the code is good to jump into. In terms of understanding the domain not necessarily writing any code. I think working closely with the business, talking to product owners, talking to real people in the business that are going to use the software as soon as possible, I think is really important. It's the best way to understand the domain. They know the domain better than anyone else. Um, I've worked on projects sometimes where there's been a layer of business analysts that sit between the development team and the real people that are going to use this software. And sometimes things can get lost in translation. I've, I can think of a lot of times where I've picked up a ticket, a feature ticket, which has been written by a business analyst, and it can be quite detailed sometimes, sometimes too detailed. I think that I, I always like user stories, which are kind of, they're there to promote, a kind of prompt a discussion between you and the business. They're there to get the developer to ask questions and to ask, why do you want to do this? Quite often tickets that end up going through business analysts I'm going, to, I'm going to sound like I, I hate business analysts now. I've got nothing against business analysts. I've worked some, with some really great BAs on projects. But you do quite often end up with quite prescriptive tickets. And when you end up with kind of tickets to prescribe a particular implementation, you're missing that context. You're missing what is the problem they're trying to solve. Is this necessarily the best way of solving it? And it isn't always the best way of solving it. And being able to just sit down with the, the person that's going to use the product and talk to them and find out what they're really trying to do quite often leads, leads to discovery of new ways of doing things. So having that close contact, even as a freelancer and a contractor as part of the team, is really important, I think. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about, um, I would imagine that in those scenarios where you've got like a business analyst or tickets that are super detailed, very prescriptive on the implementation, my, an assumption I would make is that in those environments, they're trying to reduce some of the um, the need for maybe some further conversations as you know you're saying you know, like if it's helpful as a developer to want to participate in those conversations be like I want to understand why I'm doing this and what's what's the rationale behind this before we go through and do this because you want to have more context and then so sometimes that context gets lost when it's gone through a couple of different layers of different types of people and then that that, that can be an interesting challenge there I think with trying to be like how do you keep the team like moving forward on pushing shipping stuff is like just like the like a perception that there's it's more efficient to just give the developers specifically everything they need to do so they can take care of the code produce the code ship it back and we're good right like 
I don't want to have to like re-explain it to every single person that like wants to, that's going to come in contact with this Jira ticket or whatever you're using. It's interesting how that's always a little bit of a, a challenge in different environments. And because you can also have tickets that are super vague and require a lot of conversations too. And then trying to find a good happy medium, uh, medium there, I think to some degree, I like that, that whole point you made about user stories should be able to help, you know, maybe prompt a conversation to further clarify. Are you then more often in a scenario where you feel like you're, you prefer to be in a scenario where you can help update the ticket with the, some clarity on what the acceptance criteria before you dig it into, dig into it. And then with the business analyst or whoever's kind of, the other side of that that ticket? Yes, I think the kind of ticket grooming process is really important. And I think it's important that developers are involved in it. I think it's fine to write a vague ticket as a starting point. Someone has just an idea that pops into their head. It's great, file it as a ticket in whatever issue tracker you're using, preferably not Jira, but it quite often ends up being Jira. Just make sure they realize it's just a placeholder for a deeper, more meaningful conversation later. Um, and then taking the time to sit down with the client, and it could be a couple of developers, the BA, whoever is going to be involved in developing that ticket out, developing it into the kind of traditional as a certain type of user, I want to be able to do this. You know, the, the usual format works well enough, but that last part, the why, that because I want to do this, because what is the reason you want to do this? It's quite often you kind of stop after the as a X, I want to do this. And then that's where it finishes. Unless you understand the why, it's very hard to discover what the best implementation is. And I do think whether you're a freelancer or just part of part of the normal team, being involved in those conversations is really important. If you kind of delegate it off to just the BA who goes away and talks to the customer and comes back with this fully fleshed out ticket, and then the first time the developer sees it is when he picks it up off the top of the backlog queue, that context is gone. And like you say, they then probably will have questions and then they need to go back, find the product owner and talk to them again. And then the product owner is going to think, well, I've already had this conversation with the BA. Why can't you just go and talk to them? Uh, so having involved in the involving developers from the outset when you're, do, when you're fleshing out stories and you're kind of grooming the backlog of stories is really important. If you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about Ruby on Rails and I was, you know, something that, you know, that you're, exploring the idea of maybe no longer being part of the freelancing world and trying to find like a full-time employment again in, in the near future. Um, I wanted to kind of get a little bit of a sense of like, what have you seen has been some of, because I'm hoping that I have a variety of people in the audience that are, some of them might be independent contractors, but I would imagine most people probably are employed somewhere or are trying to be employed somewhere. And um, what have you seen being some of the pros and cons of being an independent contractor? The, pro, the One of the main pros for me, has always been being able to work on a wide variety of projects. For a long time, I, I didn't enjoy the idea of being kind of stuck on the same, working on the same project or the same app for years and years and years. So that was one motivation. And just having the, the freedom to work how and where I wanted. Um, and when I, when I started 11 years ago, when I decided to become a freelancer, that was the best way to get that work environment, being able to work remotely, being able to work your own hours, take time off when you want it. You know, and the pay was good, I'll be completely honest. You, you could earn a lot more money as a freelancer and a contractor. And I have absolutely no regrets becoming a freelancer. It's been able to, you know, enable us to start a family and buy a house and that's all been great. But it seems like the... The world of employment has moved on quite a lot in the last decade. And I think you can have a lot of those benefits now in a full-time job. And there's obviously a certain stability to having a full-time job. It's, you know, no job's ever guaranteed, but there is a huge amount of stress that comes with being a freelancer and wondering where the next project is going to come from. Even if you've got, you know, I, I worked on an 18-month contract last year, which was great on one hand, because I knew I had a certain amount of work coming in. But all through that contract, I'm staring at my inbox and thinking, well, where are the leads coming in from the for the next project? What's going to happen when this comes to, to an end? I used to get quite a lot of leads 10 years ago, but they really seem to have dried up. And I guess that's partly down to me maybe not going out and getting the leads. 
I used to blog a lot. Work and family life just got in the way. I used to get a lot of traffic to my website because I blogged, and then that obviously drops off. It's hard work maintaining that constant stream of leads and new work coming in as a freelancer. Having done that for a decade, I kind of feel like I want something a little bit less stressful. And also because I kind of, I've talked a lot about being kind of um, on the team, when I come into a new team, having that kind of senior high level consultant level role, where I take a lot more of an interest in solving the business problems, leading teams, mentoring junior developers. Uh, so it kind of feels like now is a good time to me to move into more of a tech lead role somewhere. And I feel like that would be best achieved going and working for you know one person, one, one company, rather than moving to and from different projects over and over again as well. We'll be back with our interview with Luke in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say, first, thank you for listening to Maintainable. And second, I wanted to take a moment to plug my own company. So as you may know, I am the CEO of Planet Argon. We're a software consultancy based in Portland, Oregon, United States that helps companies with existing Ruby on Rails applications, primarily, make them better and more maintainable. What does this mean? So a lot of our clients come to us with existing Rails apps and they might be needing to get help with an upgrade and we might be able to help coach their team on how to do that themselves. Or perhaps they're just running behind on their backlog and they need some help on building out some new features. Or more often is that they come to us and their app's beginning to show some age and they need help with improving the performance of the application. They need help with just cleaning up some technical debt, maybe rethinking some of the architecture and working on refactoring projects. We love digging our hands into those types of dirty problems, rolling up our sleeves and and helping clean that up. So if you're curious, get in touch with us at planetargon.com. And now, back to our interview with Luke Redpath. I haven't been a freelancer necessarily in a really long time. I did that for a few years before and then I became an agency. So I have some of those similar concerns about like, what are the next projects? It's always like, we're bi- we're really busy right now for the next couple of months, but three to six months, I'm like, I was in a conversation, like a personal conversation with some friends last night and they're like, how's business? I'm like, well, we've been really consistently busy so far this year, but in six months, I don't know, this is all going to fall apart if I don't figure out where the next leads are going to come from. Right. And that's what they didn't get like that. And like I have that issue with like, then I've got like a dozen employees or whatever. And it's like, Oh, I got to keep everybody employed. And it's it's like, sometimes I fantasize about the idea. I'm like, what if I just got a job again? You know, someone, someone else, someone else's budget to, to worry about. And, and they, they, they're responsible for the sales and marketing and stuff like that as well. But the, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm also, you mentioned earlier also that, you know, you, your life situation has changed over, you know, since say a decade ago and you have other stresses in your life and want that stability. And, that's interesting. I think there's always a, uh, I don't know that freelancing is for everybody and for forever either. And it doesn't need to be a forever thing either. And I think that's, I've seen people struggle with the, uh, they have a certain set of amount of pride with like the fact that they've been able to do things a certain way. Like, look, I'm self-employed for this long and like it's part of their identity. And then be like, well, if I go get a job again, am I somehow going to be perceived by myself? I might look at myself like I don't know do you do you, have you navigated some of those internal monologue like conversations with yourself and I'm asking you to be a little vulnerable here I, I appreciate but uh I'm always curious about that type of stuff because I, I want to I want I want the audience to hear this stuff because it's not because I don't think it's it's uncommon it's something I've thought about more and more over the last couple of years there's been there's been a few occasions where I thought maybe I should you know finish being a freelancer get a full-time job and then, you know, a really lucrative contract comes up, you know, it's a year's it's a year of work, it's a good rate. And you think, oh, well, I'm I'm safe and secure again for another year, I'll take that, and then you forget about it for a while. But obviously this year has been a an unusual year for everybody. Um, and it's got me thinking about it again. And also I kind of feel like I'm maybe coming up to a halfway point in my career. I mean, I've been freelancing for eleven years, but I've been doing web development or web design or something along those lines for almost 20 years now, I'm starting to think, what does the next 20 years of my career look like? And it kind of feels like 
depending on your ambition, there's a limit to how far you can go as a freelancer and a contractor. I mean, you, you, your rates can go up over time as you get more experience, but there's always going to be a ceiling to what you can charge. But there's not really anywhere for your career to go, I suppose. You're either just a consultant or a contractor and you come in and you work on a project and then you go off again. Whereas it, I, I, something I see, I see a lot of people talking about going into either kind of a tech lead role or an engineering management role. And there, it, there is, it seems if, you, if you're in the kind of full-time employment world, there is a career progression there. And I see more and more companies talking about career progression frameworks. And it feels like something the industry is really thinking about a lot more these days than well, what they were doing, say, 10 years ago. I thought a lot about what kind of direction I want to go. I, I always feel like I want to do some hands-on coding but I, I don't feel like I want to be a, a bum-on-seat programmer, as it were, for the next 20 years of my career. Nothing, nothing against anyone who just wants to program for the rest of their career and then retire when they're done. It's just, it's just not for me. I, I feel like I want to move more in that kind of tech lead direction. It feels like a good balance of having that high-level leadership role but still maintaining a bit of hands-on hands-on programming even if it's half the amount of programming I might do now. But um, it is certainly something I've spent more and more thinking about over the last couple of years. And that's kind of, and with everything that's been going on this year, work slowing down even more, it feels like now is a good time to make that, that leap, I suppose. I can appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for opening up and sharing a bit about that. Um, I'm always curious about that type of conversation and topic related to you just navigating those types of changes in your, your career and stuff like that. You know? Yeah. I, I say that cause even openly, you know, like sometimes I have to question my own, I'm like, am I just doing what I'm doing because I've been doing it so long and it's like my identity now, or is this like, how, how do I think about my career in the next, you know, 15, 20 plus years or whatever? Cause I've been in the industry about the same amount of time as you. And so that's a, there, there is this kind of like, am I making this the same sort of impact or how can I make more impact maybe? And I think that's when you talk about some of those like tech lead roles or engineering manager type roles, there, there is a level of like, I can make more impact than just what my fingers can type into, into a code editor. Right. And so that can help enable other people to, to, to move up in this, their career, be the engineering manager that I wish that I had had, you know, early in my career or something could be a way to look at that as well. I wanted to touch on another thing related to Ruby on Rails, cause it's just more of a, this is actually a, um, kind of like a, one of the questions I use in some of my interviews when I'm interviewing potential people that work for me um, at my company. I, so specific to Rails, and so uh, I'm not trying to catch you off guard or anything too much here, but a little hypothetical scenario that I, I run by people, and I think just I'm always curious to hear people's answers here. So let's say I'm I'm going to give you access to a Git repository to a, say a monolithic Ruby on Rails application. And you, you're not going to be able to clone the project and get it up and running in your local dev environment, but you're going to be able to click around in GitHub or whatever and see the code in, in your browser and you're and say, I'm going to say, okay, in two hours, can you send me over uh, an email or something that a write-up that explains what you believe the application offers its end users and why some company might have paid to have this be built? How would you approach that? That's a really good question. I do that quite a lot. I I quite like reading code on GitHub, even my own code. If I it, if I've opened a pull request, I'll like quite often come back to it several times and just read the pull request again and make make sure it makes sense. Uh, but then actually just diving into source code repositories and reading them, I think is a really good way of learning. Uh, and I guess my starting point in a Rails application would be the roots file, I think, just to give me a high level overview of, you know, what does this app expose? Does it have an API? Is it, does it have an admin section? What can you do in the admin section? What can you do with the API? What does the front end look like? And then based on what I learned from the roots file, I would probably look at the models and then move quite quickly over to the test folder, I think. I'd stay away from the views. Uh, I don't think there's much to be learned not much to learn from looking for views and html templates not not to start with uh controllers tend to be pretty boring in rails i mean they should be boring good controllers in rails should be pretty boring but i'd dive into the test folder and i'd hope there's some acceptance tests in there 
and I'd try and find those and I would read through those. If there aren't any acceptance tests, then I would start looking through the model, the model tests and just try to get a feeling for what the app does. I'd also look through the commit history as well. I'd try and find interesting commit messages and the pull request history as well, I think is a good way of seeing how the app has developed over time. Hopefully, by having done all that, you should have a good handle on what the app does at the very least. In an ideal world, it'd have a really good readme as well. Just explaining what the app does, how to get it up and running, maybe some screenshots. Screenshots are really useful, actually. I think more pull requests should have screenshots. I've worked on a few projects where every time you open a pull request, we use a template that says, you know, drop a few screenshots in here. I've seen some developers even go further and record little videos and attach them as GIFs. If it's got some kind of interactive front-end feature, uh, and clients love that as well. They love to be able to just click on a pull request and see what it does. They, they might not understand the code side of it, but if they can see pictures of what's about to hit master and the next deployment to staging, they like to see all of that. And it's useful for other developers to get, keep on top of what other people are working on as well. I think that, that idea with screenshots or little screen recordings is super helpful, especially with like depending on the size of a client you're working with. But there's, the, I'm, I'm always encouraging my team to like, I'm like, did you include screenshots? Like, don't make people think too much if they don't have to, like in terms of like, if you can show like, hey, I went and tested this on the, in this, like, especially if you're working on a bug fix or something, you're like, oh, look, uh, see now I click, I, I'm demonstrating that I want to reproduce the bug. I can see it. And then also see now it's working. Here's a quick little video. It can cut down on some of the, the back and forth of like them reviewing and testing like, okay, cool. Just ship it to production and we're good. Cause you've shown that, you know, you've, you've solved the problem. And so you can save them some time of going in, to a staging environment and logging in, going to that thing, trying to click through around. If you could save them five, 10 minutes of their activity by providing a 20 second video, like that's everybody's better off for that. And then that tends to not be as expensive and laborious of a task to do either, just to, to, to create those things really quickly one off. So I think people think they're like, oh, I don't, to, I don't know how to create a video. It sounds complicated, but um, once you find some good, some good tools for that, it's actually pretty quick. So. That's some good suggestions. But yeah, thanks for going and running through that exercise for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, you pass. I, I would. I think you might actually know what you're talking about when it comes to Rails. It's interesting because I'll ask people that um, and get wildly different answers sometimes. And it's always like, what are the? I'm. I am looking as an employer to hear if they're going to be looking at like look for tests. If they don't, you've mentioned the test folders, spec folders, whatever, and like look to see if there's anything that kind of helps convey how the application should be working. I usually see that as a little bit of a flag and be like, okay, well, maybe they have some notion of how to work on tests, but um, it's that is something I'm, I'm looking to hear people kind of mention. And there's a lot of different ways, but and you also hear about people like, well, look at the views and see what, like, what they're asking for in forms. And like, you can tell about you can make some sense of like from a schema file sometimes it's helpful rails is pretty good at like naming hopefully people are good at naming things so you kind of get a sense like okay well what's an order well an order for what you know like those items and okay there's a cart okay that makes sense there's might be some e-commerce functionality here but a couple of quick last questions i want to before we wrap up do you find yourself more often on team refactor or team rewrite team refactor i think there are times where it feels like a rewrite is the only solution, but it's an expensive process to go through. I very rarely encounter a code base that is so bad that it's a lost cause. What would push me towards a rewrite, I guess, would be code that is fairly bad in the first place to warrant it, has no test coverage whatsoever, not even acceptance tests is becoming harder and harder to change. Simple features are taking two or three times as long as they should take. But I would always try and push for the refactoring solution first. I mean, it, you know, lots of code bases are salvageable. You can add acceptance tests to any code base, no matter how bad they are. You can fire up some Selenium tests and run through as many scenarios as possible. Nobody likes doing it. Nobody writes, likes writing acceptance tests, especially after the fact, going back and writing all these tests for every feature that's ever been implemented. But that, that could be the difference between having to throw a code base away and being able to kind of whip it into shape. I think it can be a challenge sometimes even without that test suite to really know what does a rewrite even look like if you don't know exactly how it's supposed to work. 
you know, if you don't have that all in your head or documented pretty cleanly, you kind of still have like a end up with a similar type of challenge. Yeah. So I can give some example an example of a that was, I was on Team Rewrite or, or the client was on Team Rewrite and I, I agreed with them. A client I worked for about nine years ago now, they were developing a system for kind of telematics based insurance. So they, they captured driving data from a device in your car and then they, they that data got uploaded to their server and then they would process it to build up a, a driver's profile and then they could use that, they could send that to an insurer and they could tailor an insurance quote for you based on how good a driver you were. When I came on board, the, the system was a couple of C++ uh, apps which did some really kind of, it was written in C++ for the performance reasons. It, it basically took all your GPS coordinates and snapped them to roads, and it was quite a intensive process. But the the glue that held everything together was a Perl script thousands of lines long. And obviously that was not maintainable. And where do, where do you even begin to start refactoring something like that? My task was to take that file and rewrite it in Ruby and... Ruby on Rails as well for kind of the back end. It was a challenge. I'd never read or written any Perl in my life. I mean, if, if you're a Rubyist, it's not hard to read Perl. Uh, you know, you can see some of the influences on Ruby from Perl there. But it was quite enjoyable in the end to be able to take this massive Perl script, which we should have got them to where they needed to be at that point in the business. They've got their working prototype. We effectively we developed a domain model out of it. We broke it up into kind of little individual jobs that we tied together with, um, I think we used Rescue at the time, uh, just to form the little pipeline. And that became the starting point for their system going forward. And that system they were able to maintain and develop over time. And then when I came back to work for them Six years later, I came back to do some iOS work for them by that point. And the company had grown from three people to 50-plus employees. It was still running Rails for a lot of the back back-end stuff. The pipeline was still there. It probably developed and changed a lot since I first wrote it. But that, I think, is a good example where a rewrite paid off. That, that Perl script was never going to be maintainable. It was never going to scale. But it got them to where they needed to be. It was a quick prototype. And the rewrite made sense. Thanks for sharing that example there. You know, you mentioned as you know, you're also you know doing iOS development, and there, there's been more conversations about having more maybe more consistent patterns for how to build those applications, and knowing that one of the benefits of things like Ruby on Rails for us early on was that we could jump between projects, you know, as contractors, you know, and freelancers, whatever. To as long as they followed most conventions, we can kind of navigate our way around. And that was a really good thing because prior to that, it was a lot of like, all right, like my own experience was I worked in PHP prior to working with Ruby on Rails as like the primary language before some other, I used some other languages before that, but it was always like, all right, well, what, how does this thing piece together? You know, are they using maybe some different templating things here, but how are they talking to the database? You know, it's. It felt like it was the preference of whatever developer at that time decided to use, and and something like Ruby on Rails is like, let's just not have those conversations. Let's just jump forward a couple and be like, here's some baseline that we're all kind of agreeing to. Either you're adopt, you're embracing it, or you're going to be fighting a different type of battle. And so, um, have you? And you're are you seeing that that's improving in the mobile development world with with these other frameworks? Like there are some more patterns there. Definitely. It kind of almost feels like a process, a community that evolves around a language or a framework has to go through at some point. And I feel like Rails went through it as well. Even though Rails came with all of these conventions and it was almost revolutionary. Like you say, I was also a PHP programmer before I picked up Ruby and there was no convention there. Then Ruby on Rails came along and all of a sudden every language had its Rails framework. You know, Python had Django and PHP had, I think, Symfony and various others um, kind of growing over time. And it almost feels like every new web framework looks a little bit like Rails in some way. So it's, it's been quite influential. But I remember Rails going through a process of everyone having lots of logic in the controllers. And then everyone said, no, no, you shouldn't do that. It's got to be thin controllers, fat models. That was kind of the first evolution that I remember. 
And then people started realizing, well, now our models are just bloated and we've got thousand line user classes. And so then the next evolution was, let's stick it all in services. Let's have a service layer. Uh, and then you, you ended up with this services folder full of files, which are, are they commands? Are they services? What do they really do? Is it just almost a junk drawer? And I think the Rails went through that process of the community saying, you know, what is the best way to structure your code within the framework that Rails gives you? Uh, and I've very much seen the iOS community going through that as well, particularly over the last five years since Swift came along, but before that as well. And we've had kind of very minimal changes from MVC, really crazy architectures where one feature requires about six different classes to implement. I think that might be some Java programmers sneaking into the iOS development community. But I think a lot of Rubyists also went on to pick up iOS and try to bring some of the knowledge they learned from Rails as well and trying to structure iOS apps. And just the fact that they had the conversation about architecture, I think is a good thing. It always takes some time for the community to decide what's the best way of doing it. And from what I see, everything seems to be heading towards the idea of unidirectional data flow. Things like being influenced by things like React and Redux and Vue.js and Vuex, your view is your user interface is a function of your state. And I'm seeing that the iOS community seems to be picking up on that idea now. And I think Apple were almost pushing people that way with having reactive, uh, a reactive framework like Combine out of the box. I mean, there's been RX Swift and various reactive frameworks for Objective-C and Swift for years, but now Apple have their own. It's almost like they're giving it this style of programming, their blessing. And of course, Swift UI, which the whole concept of it is this reactive user interface that just refreshes as your state changes. So I feel finally the iOS community is coming together around this, this idea, which is great. It makes it a lot easier for JavaScript programmers who have been doing React for years to jump into iOS and pick up because it pick it up because it's all the same kind of idea, really. You have some state, it changes, your user interface updates. And it's a very different style of programming an application that you might do in Rails because you've got the whole client-server thing that you don't need to worry about with iOS. But I, yeah, I think all these communities go through this process all the time. So as you reflect on your time in the industry, you know, I know that there's a lot of there's a lot more tooling available. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot, you know, every application, the pipeline to me feels more complicated in a lot of ways. There's a lot of more technologies you need to know to like know how to ship something and deploy something. Do you feel like that's creating a barrier at all for people coming into the industry to be able to like get up and running quickly because they have to understand a lot or compared to what I feel like we might have needed to know 15, 20 years ago? I, I think maybe there is. I mean, you said there's a lot of tooling. There really is a lot of tooling these days compared to even five years ago, certainly compared to 10 years ago. When Rails first came out, it was fairly straightforward. You know, you did gem install Rails, you know, you generated a new Rails project and off you go. You you edit your database.yaml and you're good to go. And these days, as well as doing all of that, you've got to worry about Node and NPM and Yarn and what JavaScript frameworks you're going to use, what CSS libraries you're going to use. It just feels like there's a lot of tools these days and it's hard to know whether that is a barrier for brand new developers because they're young and enthusiastic and, and they want to learn everything. Whereas I'm only 37, but I feel like I'm getting on in the industry now. I'm, I'm, I'm old in the industry and I can only keep up with so many technologies, especially when I'm jumping back and forth between the iOS world and the Rails world. The evolution of JavaScript over the last five years almost feels like it passed me by. I mean, I have got one eye on it. You know, I know what React is. I know what Next.js is. I know what Vue is. But I've, I've never really written any of that stuff because the sort of Rails apps I work on just don't use any of that. But I, I can see how it could be intimidating. I wonder if I was a new developer now, whether, whether I would find that a problem. It's hard to say. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like a... We don't. I don't know what it's like, and you know, I, I employ junior developers for their first job in in this field, and they usually come out of like a boot camp or something for six months or whatever, and they they know a lot more than I give them credit for. You know, I can then I can, I think they would, but then there's a lot of like concepts. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but then I also realize that there's a lot of fundamental concepts that I learned early on that don't get that maybe aren't even need to be explained in the same way. 
necessarily because they're they're thinking things at a, at a, at a different level than needing to worry about how to debug things because there might be some DNS issues or something, you know? And like, like they're like, oh, how does DNS work? And I'm like, oh, but I can tell you all about that because I've like, that was like some of my early era of my career was managing DNS servers like manually on on Linux machines or something. But uh, so there's 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 all these different like technology stacks. And and, and so sometimes I, I worry that I'm thinking that things are more complicated now, but I used to need to know way more low level things in some ways back then that I don't know that people need to know as much anymore. So I don't know, maybe it all, maybe it's, maybe it's not that different. It's just different technology stacks. There's maybe there's more that I don't know about. And that makes me feel intimidated in the industry as well. Like I haven't written in any react. I've made some, Oh, I made a few updates with some react apps, but I honestly didn't know what the hell I was doing in it. So um, it's confusing to me. So I'm not, not part of that world, but I was just going, we, we started, we both started writing Rails apps where the state of the art was kind of scriptaculous and miraculous and all of those kind of libraries. And we were still using jQuery and jQuery was bundled with Rails and it was simple. I like stimulus.js. I think it's, I think it's a, a great way of write, progressively enhancing Rails apps with JavaScript. It works for me. I've never felt the need to start throwing myself into learning things like React. Uh, and there's a lot of great JavaScript front-end developers out there that specialize in that kind of thing. And to be completely honest, it's never really been massively of interest to me. So I've just kind of left it alone, really. Well, with that, as we wrap things up, where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Twitter is probably the best place. I keep telling myself I need to start blogging again, and I really do hope to start blogging again. But in the meantime, Twitter is probably the best place to follow my thoughts on the latest software developments and controversies, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Luke. Thanks so much for talking shop. Thanks for having me. Oh.